Hi, Pete. What's happening? Nice to see you. Good to see you, Nick. Hey, Natalie. I, I love this new media side of you. You do? Oprah. Yes. <laughs> Watch out. <laughs> Pete, I've listened to about at least 10 of them, and my favorite is the Leonard Lauder one. <laughs> I had a I had a funny story with him where I went into his someone introduced us for lunch and so I went to the office and I was maybe slightly more formally dressed than this maybe I had a sweater on and the secretary I tell you this the secretary no. when I walked in was like oh, I, I have to fit like was like cleaning off my sweater and like you know, they didn't make you put on a jacket nice. like a nice restaurant or something they didn't like well it was in his office <laughs> and and I was clearly too disheveled to see Leonard. <laughs> Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Nordy Pod. I'm Pete Nordstrom, president of Nordstrom, and your host for this podcast. Join me as I take you on an honest, authentic journey through our company and introduce you to many of the fascinating people in my life, one episode at a time. In this episode, I'm excited to share my conversation with a couple of super talented venture capitalists, founders of Imaginary Ventures, Nick Brown and Natalie Massonette. This morning, I'm super happy to have Nick Brown and Natalie Massonet on from Imaginary Ventures. These are two people that I've known for a while because they are involved with a lot of brands that are important to Nordstrom. And their whole purpose, and they're going to talk about this, is to identify and invest in these brands to give them a leg up and to really make them successful and amplify them out there in the world. And so it's super interesting what they work on and and things that you guys do is super critical, I think, to our industry and helping new brands get discovered. So first of all, thanks so much for being here, both of you. Thank you for We're having exciting us. to be here. You know, it's interesting when I was looking over your site and I know from having worked with you guys, but there's brands on here that are big and are important to us and, a, you know, really a part of what we do around here in a pretty major way. And for example, one of the guests we had on, we had Gucci Westman. So you guys are involved with Westman Atelier. So I think that's an interesting connection. But, you know, Skims, which is a super hot brand for us, Good American, Reformation and more. So let's kind of get into it. And so, Natalie, why don't we kind of start with you? Before you got into this, you certainly had a big reputation in our industry as a pioneer with what you did at Net-A-Porter and stuff. And I know you had a history before that, too. So can you talk about your professional journey that brought you to this point? Well, I mean, I'd like to say that everything that I've ever done is about thinking about what's next. And I started as a journalist. I wanted to be an editor of a glossy magazine and worked for Women's Wear Daily. And um, I learned very early on from a great editor, Patrick McCarthy. He'd say to me, kid, you know, you see three things, even if they're unrelated, but they point to one direction, name it, predict it, write about it. And really started looking at the world um, and trying to think about where things were going. And I realized that the magazines were telling consumers what to buy next, throw this away, you know, you're not a complete person unless you have this. 
But the retailers, and I'm sure this is not the case in Nordstrom's case, mm-hmm. <laughs> right, Pete? The sure. retailers were filling the shelves of their stores, you know, due to retrospective planning. You know, what sold well last year, we're going to buy more and sell more of it. Oh, for sure. I mean, that's the easiest thing. That's what you know. <laughs> so what if we just bought more of what we did last year? But as you well know, that, that only takes yeah. you so far. But um, working in magazines, I realized that the consumer was just being left in the middle, um, wanting what was next. But the people who were taking the risk on product were taking safer bets. So thoughts, listen, there's an opportunity to combine the two from telling people what's next and offering it to them. That led to me thinking, sure, I'll start an e-commerce company two years after Amazon started. And it just felt very blindingly obvious that this is how people were going to want to shop. And during my time at Net-A-Porter, I was constantly thinking about what was new in terms of products, whether it was beauty, sports, fashion, shoes. And during that time, I would talk to founders of businesses and say, hey, I'll put you on Net-A-Porter you know, in exchange for a global online exclusive. And, um, but I'll help you get off the ground. I'll help you, I'll give you some advice on how to leverage digital marketing. You know, let me interview your team. Let me talk to some investors, see if they're, um, you know, the right people for you. And, you know, some of those people turned out to launch, you know, very important businesses like Charlotte Tilbury. And I realized that had I not been a retailer, had I been an investor, there would have been a you know, we could have not just given her mentorship and advice, but also invested in that business. Um, but that's a little bit about what got me excited. And then Nick, you know, came at it from being a very successful investor. And I'm sure he's going to tell you. All right. Well, there's, there's a lot there that we're going to dig into. But before we do that, yeah, let's talk to Nick a little bit and, and hear about, you know, what got you involved in this. So I graduated college in 2008, which was about the worst moment (laughs) that one could, certainly at the time that one could think of leaving. And I was a banker for a hot second. I worked at JP Morgan in their M&A group. I left after nine or 12 months. I, I, I didn't love it. I wasn't happy. It was obviously not a great time to be a banker. And I joined a family office based in New York, which was just getting up and running. And this is 2010, 2011. And it was right when so many things were happening simultaneously. You had the power of social that was starting to become pervasive in a moment in time that was really cheap. So you could leverage Facebook and other platforms to reach new customers in a really easy way. You had the dawn of the DTC revolution. So you had a distribution channel that people were thinking about in different kinds of ways. You had a class of shoppers, i.e. millennials, that suddenly had real disposable income that were thinking about the products that they wanted and probably had different expectations, thought processes around what products they wanted and which ones that they would enjoy. And all of that happened right as I joined as a very junior member of an investment team. And so a lot of it was luck. The first founders, maybe not the first, but close to the first founders I met were four graduate students out of the University of Pennsylvania that had, as a summer project, started a business called Warby Parker. They, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> That's a good one. They, good place to start. It was a good place to start. They had, they had launched. And so I, I didn't get a chance to see it before it launched, but they had launched. There was a huge amount of consumer demand for the product. 
what amazed me about those founders was they were very focused on brand positioning from the very beginning. They were very focused on trying to create as strong of a customer experience as they possibly could. And they were problem solvers. They understood that the steps that one would take to buy glasses in a traditional fashion were not ideal. And so they built a business that responded to those issues and those challenges. And, you know, it was the early innings in the space. And so not a lot of people were investing in that category. And I think I was able to use that investment and investments in other businesses to you know, build a little bit of a brand around myself. Ideally, Nick be... was the go-to guy for if you were going to start a D2C brand. I mean, he is the guy still. Yeah, no, I, I believe that. So <laughs> yeah. Nick was, was part of that because you were like the young guy in the group. So, well, he must know what's going on with this technology and stuff. Was it just your orientation to it, given your age, that gave your perspective value in this whole proposition? I think it was orientation. Yeah, I think what always surprised me most whether it was a company that we invested in or a company that we were looking at or even spending time with founders in the ecosystem, is that investors never talked about the product. They talked about your tech and they talked about your customer acquisition strategy and they talked about exits and they talked about a P&L, but there was never any conversation around product. And for me, that was always baffling. And so I think I naturally gravitated to people that thought about the customer first and about product first. And, you know, that was always Natalie's DNA. And I'm going to I'm going to fudge the story. But I remember very early on, as we were getting to know each other, you said something to the effect of when we were operating the business at Netaporte, if we had exceptional product it made all the other problems fall away. We could do everything else really poorly and we would do really well because we had what the customer ultimately wanted. And I think that really resonated with me. So we spent more and more time together and met more and more founders. And I think looked at the world and looked at the opportunity set in very similar ways. So I think the, for me, the origin really was how could you create a early stage venture practice, because for us, we really do believe in getting involved early. I mean, some of the brands that you've mentioned, you know, Reformation was a, you know, there was one store and an Urban Outfitters business when we invested. You know, Skims, we invested before the business even launched. I mean, we try and get involved in companies as early as we possibly can. So a firm that really specialized in being partners with exceptional founders as early as we could, but really thinking about the customer, thinking about all elements of one's business, not just some of the more pointed tech-related areas of the business that, you know, a traditional VC might focus on. Well, you know, you guys touch on an interesting thing, Natalie, and you, and again, you were super impactful what you guys did there at Net-A-Porte, and to this day, except that it even comes up for us, and that's how to figure out discovery online because discovery in a store happens somewhat serendipitously as you're walking through a store and you bump into stuff you hadn't planned to see but it's hard to scroll through pages and pages of stuff to to discover things it's easy to go in in a very transactional way and search for something very specific i mean that's what amazon's kind of taught us to do you want a hammer you type in hammer boom there's some hammers but fashion isn't like that so can you talk a little bit about the finesse of discovery and, and and really your journey at, at Net-A-Porte and what you learned about that? Because again, it's something we're trying to get better at here. Listen, I think 
you have to tell people why something's great. You have to get them excited. And I would say that this goes back to great product, great companies, great founders. Before, when I was a retailer, and it's the same as an investor, I would ask, you know, why'd you start this business? What's the story? What makes you different? If I couldn't figure out a way to, you know, turn around and tell somebody at a dinner party that they should be excited about something, then I didn't think that there was any point in carrying that product. It was probably a Me Too product, something that was just trying to tap into a business opportunity rather than trying to tell something new. The beauty of digital is that there's endless, endless amount of space. You know, we talk about the limitless shelf, but it's also limitless in terms of content and the ability for people who are looking for something to be entertained or to be convinced and to match the viewer who is potentially a consumer with the story is also limitless. Um, I mean, also Nick and I are always saying that every time you see a new social platform, that will inevitably become the biggest retail platform. You know, when TikTok came along and everybody was dancing and moving around and doing silly videos, it was inevitable that that social content platform was about to become the biggest retail platform. But I always used to tell people, hey, you don't have to learn how to tell stories, hire people who tell stories. And now with the companies that we're involved with, they have to hire people who tell stories in a lot of different ways, whether it's spoken internally with your team or with your consumer in videos and social. We don't expect the founder or CEO of a company to know how to do all of these things just in the same way that we don't expect them to know what the best, you know, end-to-end influencer marketing uh, platform is. But is that like something every founder needs to have? If they don't have the ability to tell you why something's awesome, are, are they just not going to be able to make them? I mean, to your point, Natalie, they got to have, they got to bring a certain skill set to the game, but don't they have to bring the, the ability to articulate the vision of what they're doing? Someone on the team has to be able to do that. We, Nick and I, represent this and everything that we look for is backed by this and everything that I've always been passionate about is based on this, which is yin and yang. And it's uh, complementary skill sets. It's, uh, you know, operations meets marketing. More likely, whenever a business that we've invested in or any business really that has a great idea if the person with the idea, with the brand, the marketing does not appreciate the importance of logistics, of operations, of financial discipline, then those businesses will go nowhere. Likewise, if a founding team is all ops, all finance, all structure and discipline. And these are people who maybe have been involved in the most successful businesses. If they don't have someone on the team at the highest level, and if they don't themselves appreciate the importance of product, of marketing, of brand, of storytelling, of what's next, of serving the customer, those businesses will fail. Yeah, you know, we we get approached by all kinds of different brands, as you would well know. And uh, the one thing we talk about is we're not good at creating a brand, but we're good at amplifying a brand that's buzzy and it's got something really going for it. And so maybe, you know, maybe Nick, you can talk a little bit about that and your guys' journeys. You're discovering brands 
you know, trying to find brands that have a point of view, have a story to tell, have something that's compelling, that gives someone a reason to buy something new, and then how you can enable that to be something bigger. For sure. I mean, I the one thing we, re, for better or worse, the one thing we remind ourselves all the time is that most of the early stage companies we invest in don't end up working, right? And so you have to be prepared to, f- I mean, I don't want to use the word fail. So what's that ratio? I mean, if extreme. you guys invest in 10 things, how many of them, I mean, do you have it in your mind? Like, you know, three things, things got to work, four are going to fail miserably and a couple are in the middle. How does that work? When we invest in a company, we have a hundred percent faith yeah. that they're going to succeed. <laughs> yeah. Um, but <laughs> yeah, I would, I mean, if you force me to answer the question, I would say, three or four of them become consequential brands. And if you're lucky, one of them becomes iconic, right? Like that's the end goal. And by the way, it might not be one in 10 that becomes iconic. It might be one in 50. It might be one in 100. It might be one in a lifetime. It depends on on the cadence. But, you know, it's important to remember because it's really hard. It's really hard to break through the noise. It's really hard to create a brand that has a reason for being. It's really hard to, as Natalie mentioned, create a brand that's tight enough where you can describe it to somebody else and get them excited. Um, The world has a lot of noise in it. And so ultimately, founders need to be open-minded as to how they evolve their distribution strategy with time. And also how they, to Natalie's point, how they evolve their marketing strategy with time. So I think the founders that have broken through that glass ceiling are always looking ahead. I think they're very open-minded as it relates to distribution. So they don't say, I only want to be a DTC business, or I only want to be a Nordstrom business, or I only want to be a physical business. They say, how do I get in front of as many customers as I possibly can? You know, that's interesting to me. I would have guessed exactly the opposite because most of the founders I've ever interacted with are very purpose-driven, very intentional around a vision that they have. And a lot of it gets back to, well, we can do this ourselves. We don't need others. We could be the next Lululemon or something. You know, they didn't have to sell a bunch of retailers and stuff. Yeah. You know, people always point to the outlier. Lululemon is a great example of an outlier. But, you know, it doesn't come without risk, right? I mean, you know this. We we say this to founders all the time. We say it less now because people are much more aware of potentially hitting a ceiling in purely DTC revenue. But, you know, wholesale partners know when you're hot and they also know when you're not hot, right? And so, you know, if you've got a potential partnership with a great partner like yourself that's really interested and you're not excited and suddenly three, four years from now, that brand is no longer relevant. There's no convincing the retailer that you are relevant. They're going to know better than anybody that you're not. And so you you can't wait until the gas is totally been used up because if the gas is totally used up, other people aren't going to be interested in working with you. And it's very, very delicate. And if you miss that timing, which most people do, you can get yourself into a real state of static growth, which is a problem. I think the consumer likes to know that the multi-brand retailers are carrying the brand that they are wearing. I think, you know, I, I, I see department stores, retailers, multi-brand retailers, you're just a big version of an influencer. You know, if right. you th- think about the fact that you can shop off of an influencer on social media, 
you know, you can shop off of Nordstrom. Nordstrom is dictating by virtue of what they put in their stores, what you spend your time on, saying this is important, this is not. And I think consumers notice, you know, people are susceptible to brand and they're susceptible to being accepted and wearing the right thing within their own, you know, social circles. And they want some sort of validation that what they're wearing and what they're spending their money on is worth spending money on. And the really good brands understand that they need to be visible, credible, and seen in as many places as possible. They can do the majority of their retailing on their own channels, but without some form of external um, endorsement, it's very hard for brands to, to survive, which is also why brands, you know, put clothes on famous people and um, do advertising campaigns and want to be seen in the right publications and the right places. So I always think about multi-brand retailers as marketers more than distributors. And when we talk to founders about it, we almost say, listen, you could sell 100% of your product at 100% of your margin to the world, but why don't you think about being seen and being visible in these other platforms as a marketing cost and perhaps the, you know, your diminished margin when you wholesale um, should be offset by your customer acquisition and visibility. Yeah. You know, your point about using a multi-brand store like us is really a a marketing and a customer acquisition tool. It reminds me, you know, several years ago when we started doing business with Topshop, and, you know, they had this big plan to come in the U.S. and open a bunch of stores and do all this stuff. And I'm talking to Philip and and I said, well, that's going to take a long time and cost you a lot of money. You're, you know, going out one by one and picking all these you know spots, building them out, creating advertising and marketing campaigns. I said, if you just started selling Nordstrom, we put them in our hundred stores around the country. You all of a sudden have a heck of a lot more awareness and a lot more going for it. And that can help inform where you might want to go because you'll see regional differences and that that worked. That that kind of got him thinking about it. But it gets back to that point about how you know we all kind of need each other. I mean, clearly we need great brands, and hopefully the brands need us too. And it it's been interesting in this in these last oh gosh, this last year or so. And a lot of it's with the designer brands, but it, they're like, yeah, we don't really need you guys so much anymore. We're just going to go do this on our own. So, what do you guys? How do you take that? Does that strike you as a moment in time, or do you think that? the whole way that retailing is going to be done is really just going to change forever. And it's going to change the role of a place like Nordstrom. Oh, retailing is changing. <laughs> yeah, that, Retail- I agree with that. Yes. <laughs> let, let, let's, let's start that with that. That could be our headline. I think it's one. in a constant state of flux and um, everyone, brands, retailers, customers need to understand their changing role in the ecosystem. People who say, I'll never do this or I'm not going to do this anymore are just boxing themselves out of a potential opportunity to do something. The thing that is constant is that there are people who are going to want to buy things. So that's the evergreen proposition, right? That's not changing. evergreen. And until we get a little bit more comfortable being naked, we're going to want clothes. (laughs) And and people want to look, you know, beauty products. They want to look better than they actually look. All of that. That's never going away. Then... Great product will win. Great product that's well-priced will win bigger. 
then it's how is the interconnectedness of where the product is, who's selling it, who's endorsing it, who made it, who partnered with it, what, where was it made, how quickly can you get it? All of these things are both changeable and, and constant rules. You know, we're living in a time when people are shopping off of, you know, their phones almost exclusively. Uh, they're expecting completely different forms of service. So many people are getting involved and have been involved in the value chain of retail. Um, so I think, you know, one thing that we always tell founders that are creating products that are going to be bought by people is make sure you have a really big gross margin to play with because you're going to find many, many, many people, you know, whether it's influencers or uh, marketing platforms or retailers are going to start eating at that margin and you want to have a very healthy margin before, you know, you, you go out to play. But you can see an, uh, an extrapolation where the ecosystem is that everyone's in it together. You know, one thing that I always fantasize about is a sort of global loyalty scheme where, you know, if you buy something at Chanel in Paris, um, you know, you get points and then you walk into a department store in the United States and you're recognized because you bought something at Chanel and then, you know, you as a consumer end up being recognized wherever you are in the world and that department stores and brands and retailers and platforms go from trying to kid themselves that they own the consumer data and that they own that consumer and understand that they share the consumer and that they all collaborate with each other to serve that customer better, right? I, that doesn't exist yet. I think I think that's one for us to watch, but I, you were saying, Pete, how, how, do, how do you collaborate and, and what's your role in all of this? And I think it's just your role will continue to be exactly what it is, to curate and to serve customers with your point of view and to excite them and to be an important validator of great product and serve the people who come to you. And you will be as important as the people who are creating the product within that brand as perhaps the people who even work in those brands own stores. It affects the customer. Everyone's interrelated. Everyone actually benefits from strong brands, from strong retailers, from strong products. We all depend on that. So it's a, it's a completely interrelated ecosystem. And we're, we're here in our little corner, um, putting, you know, giving founders and businesses mentorship and, and capital to be able to grow businesses. And I guess we're part of the ecosystem. We are so far from people not wanting to visit stores. Like, to the contrary, I'm sure you feel the same way, Pete. Like, I am shocked at some of the reasons I am given for why people wait in lines. You know, <laughs> oh, I enjoy this hour with my friends as social time. I wanna take a yeah. picture in the store. I wanna meet like-minded customers. Actually, the last one I sort of get. But, you know, people are going to stores in droves, even when in many cases, that product can be ordered at their fingertips. And they're doing it for so many different kinds of reasons. And the truth is those reasons are changing. What I think Nordstrom continues to do beautifully and what other great retailers and great professionals do beautifully is they anticipate what those changes are and they create experiences that take advantage of those things. And if you can keep doing that, I think you know you create a real reason for being, but you know the argument people you know that people don't want to go to stores anymore is 
it's crazy to me because people are it, it, the the data suggests the exact opposite. And if we go down the list in some of the examples, it is mesmerizing and comical. Yeah. Well, you know, someone said to me recently that when talking to some young people gathering some data that someone said, and it was, I think it was really kind of profound, like, I don't want to live my life in the phone. I want to live my life out there in the world. And so while the phone and being able to order things and get information, all that, that's all great. I, I don't want that to be 100% of my life. I want to engage with people. And so for us, yes. you know, you have to be able to do all of it, right? You've got to be able to show up online in a way that you know creates convenience for people but then you also have to have the ability to have a physical presence that allows all that to work together so i feel like all of that stuff's kind of in the rearview mirror at this point we're agnostic about that and however customers want to engage with us that's great exactly it's not for the business to decide how the customer wants to shop it's to be there for the customer however they want to shop you know all of last year, everyone was, you know, basically like deciding that we were going to live our whole lives in the metaverse and um, that everything was going to be, you know, digital and that we would only meet each other on Roblox and, and, <laughs> and <laughs> in digital versions of ourselves, which, by the way, we will. But we also, um, unless something really drastic happens, are human beings that live in the physical world that will need physical product that will eat food, you know, perhaps in gel format um, and uh, <laughs> with uh, extra peptides included um, are some of our favorite trends. And um, but, you know, for every trend, there's an equal and opposite counter trend. And, and I think, again, consumers are people. They are alive. They walk around. They want to be with other people. And um, we just have to make sure that everything that we're thinking about remembers that a consumer is a person. Yeah, you know, you guys have had some success. You've had brands that have done really well. We've talked about how the landscape's really evolving and changing. I'm really interested in terms of what you guys are thinking about, that what's next and what you're really excited about, whether it's a category or brand or a trend or something happening out there that is really energizing to you in your business. I would say for me, you know, from a sort of tools perspective, we're spending a lot of time thinking about inventory management as you know you and everybody else has seen over the last several years there is a challenge that comes with scale and products that you're not able to liquidate and anything that allows brands or retailers or businesses to be more thoughtful about their inventory purchases more data driven for us is really really interesting and very exciting so we're spending a bunch of time there um, in our consumer product portfolio I would say Natalie and I are probably less thematic than others are because the world didn't need another clean beauty brand in Westman Atelier, but the world needed Westman Atelier, right? Um, like that product, Gucci, her vision, where it sat in the market, the quality, the story, the narrative, like that needed to exist. And if we were so busy focused on scalp treatments as a you know category of beauty that we thought was underserved that we missed that opportunity we would have been in a lot of 
I mean, trouble is probably too extreme, but we wouldn't have been thoughtful custodians of other people's capital. So, you know, brands come about all the time and sometimes they come about um, in categories that are not terribly crowded and sometimes they come about in categories that are really crowded. And so for us, it's how do we stay really close to the ground in terms of ideas and innovation? How do we find founders that are maniacally focused on their product and are are really thinking about how to evolve their business over time. To Natalie's point, how do we think about categories that have a really healthy gross margin? Because I do think the businesses that have suffered the most over the last several years have been the ones that don't have that baked into their DNA. And right. you know, how do we underwrite the ability for something to become global? Because to your question of like, how many of these work, how many of them don't work, like if, if you find something that the world talks about and you're able to be a part of that business from infancy, chances are you're going to be successful for yourselves and your partners. Amen, Nick. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, I think since since we started Imaginary, I've been talking about wanting to understand why 50 percent of the population i.e. men um, don't seem to need skincare or beauty brands or anything else and why men have to keep borrowing product from women. So we're looking for um, someone, this is an open call, uh, any founders who want to come and create you know, the next multi-billion dollar category on serving men and their skin um, and making them look even better than they already do. We're really excited about the fact that we've got one of the fastest growing consumer segments um, in the boomers who have so much disposable income and are living so much longer than ever before. And um, most brands are aimed at 25 year olds. So there's an opportunity there to support founders, maybe who've done it once or twice before, but who now see themselves as a consumer that's ignored in the marketplace and who want to create, you know, whether it's a beauty brand or an apparel brand or a lifestyle brand, food brand for this, um, you know, very sexy aging group of people with money. Um, those are two things that I'm constantly like, if, if you approach me at a dinner party and you're like, I'm going to start a men's, you know, beauty brand. I'm like, tell me more. But haven't you found it's really tough. Anything that's directed to a customer of a certain age, particularly as they're getting older, it's not inviting, I think, to a big group of people where it feels like if something is attached to youth or being modern or being relevant, that has broad appeal for even an older person like myself. That's a really interesting take on it because I, I hear that stuff all the time. But if we're to put stuff on our stores and start talking about this, is you older people are really going to love this. It just that will not work. So I'm just curious oh, totally. how you guys well, think about that. Well, I mean, if I were doing it, um, you know, you 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 have to, of course, you have to harness the anticipation of aging um, with a younger consumer and say to them, do this now and be part of this brand, which will see you through the next 100 years of your life. I, I think expert marketers and storytellers know how to make sure that they're not alienating the very customer that they want it. But I, I, I just want to make sure that I 
don't forget to talk about the fact that we are at the dawn of a new technology that is going to be as impactful, actually two or three technologies that are going to change everything and life as we know it, <laughs> not to overstate it, but um, the combination of AI, generative AI and um, digital IDs, uh, two, two separate developments are going to create new opportunities, new business opportunities that I don't, I don't think we can even begin to imagine today. So we're, we're very excited about the potential that every human can become a creator through generative AI and express themselves, whether it's through physical product, through visual imagery, through storytelling, through music, you know, in the same way that I don't think the older generation can, could imagine that you could make a movie and be seen by hundreds of thousands of people instantly on your phone and that everyone could become Sofia Coppola um, by, um, by being given a technology tool. I think that the, the revolution that we're going to see in consumer um, linked to generative AI is something that we can't even begin to fathom. But we're very excited to, to be there as it evolves. And then the other one is the fact that um, through digital IDs, we've invested in a company called Eon, which um, is basically giving every single item, whether it's you know my pair of shoes or my handbag or even you know an IKEA sofa, a single point of contact, which is almost like giving every single product on the planet its own little mobile phone, so that it can be found, it can be communicated with, it can be tracked, it can be traded. Those two elements of technology that are entering our world are going to impact shopping, brand making, uh, marketing in ways that we haven't even seen yet. And I hope that Imaginary will take part in backing some of the most exciting developments in that space. And all with a view of what do consumers really want and what's going to delight them. That's all really good stuff. That's going to be an episode for a different day. But I mean, that there's a lot to talk about where it's all going with AI and certainly a lot for me to learn about that. So look, and I, I, I just so much appreciate that you guys are willing to be on the podcast with me. And uh, it's always inspiring for me to talk to you both and to, you know, learn about what you're working on. And uh, it just kind of restokes my fires around really what good retailing is about and that that idea about storytelling and exciting new brands and products and customers and bringing that all together and uh, discovery, everything that we talked about. So thank you for giving me a little shot in the arm this morning as I go into my day. Uh, I look forward to keep working with you guys. So when you got some new hot brands to uh, tell me about, you you got my number. And vice versa. And, vi <laughs> and vice versa. And, and, you know, it, without being, you know, sentimental, you know, it's probably worth mentioning that you know, you guys believed in what we were doing, be certainly before it was fashionable, certainly before most other people did. I mean, I remember that first conversation we had, obviously, you know, you knew each other, but we had this little idea to build this fund and why we thought that there was purpose and reason and an opening in the market. And, you know, you guys believed in it before it was obvious. And I think that's the kind of thinking, obviously, that you bring into how you build your stores, how you think about digital, how you think about brand relationships. And so, you know, we're, we're really grateful for that because, you know, it, it, it wasn't it wasn't so easy to do the things that we wanted to do back in that era. 
Well, look, you've you've added a ton of value. It's been great for us to be partners with you. And we love a lot of these brands you guys are working on. So thanks so much for that. And I look forward to catching up with you and seeing you out there in market. And I'm sure we'll be talking soon. Thanks so much, you guys. Thanks, Pete. Take care. Well, that's the show. We're really glad you're with us on this journey. And we hope you keep listening. The easiest way to do that is to subscribe to the Nordy Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please take a minute to give us a like, a share, and a review so other people can find this thing too. For more information about the show, head to nordstrom.com slash nordypodcast or follow us on our Instagram page at the Nordy Pod to stay up to date on new episodes, announcements, and more. We'd also really like to hear about your experience with Nordstrom. So if you have a story about how you receive great service or even bad service, send us an email to nordypodcast at nordstrom.com. You can even give us a call and leave a voicemail, and you may just get a chance to talk to me personally on a future episode of the show. That number is 206-594-0526. So don't be shy, drop us a line and be part of the Nordy Pod. And make sure to tune in next time when I sit down with longtime NBA announcer and former voice of the Seattle Supersonics, Kevin Calabro. Once I did a game and got over the fear of being on the microphone and the enormity of the situation or what you make it to be bigger than it is, then there's such a relief and there's a joy in it, I think, (laughs) to know that. You know, I can I can get on the air tonight. I can get through a two and a half hour broadcast. I can make this come alive. I want people to know I don't feel like I'm at work right now. I feel like I'm having some joy, having some fun, because that's why people plug into sports is to have some joy in their day. I had a lot of fun sitting down with Kevin to dive deeper into his career. He's honestly my favorite play-by-play announcer of all time, and the impact his voice has had on the world of sports is just incredible. I know you're going to love listening to his story, so join us next time on The Nordy Pod.